Jeremiah still lives. And how I know that is because of a story that I shared with you back mid-December last year about a pastor named Wang Yi. On December 18th, he and a hundred of the members of his church, the early Rain Covenant community in a western province of China, were arrested on the charge of inciting subversion against state power. Wang Yi had for many years been a lecturer at a state university and spoke openly against the excesses and the human rights record of the communist regime there. In 2005, he came to Jesus. And four years later, in 2009, he was ordained to pastoral ministry and became the pastor of the Early Reign Covenant Church in 2011. And he spoke openly and with abandon about the the need for house churches to be able to flourish, which are seen as illegal forces under state government. And he spoke not only on behalf of the Christians in the country, but for all the opportunity to gather in free assembly and speak freely in whatever they might do. 48 hours after he and his people were arrested, it had been his instruction that if he were still incarcerated, that a letter that he had written beforehand would be published. And you can read that letter in its entirety on our website under the ministry resources page for this Sunday. But early in the letter, he writes why he does what he did and what he expected in the blowback that came against him. He said, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I've received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. And then he shares what ultimately animated his intention. My disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. And so he sits in a prison. And so we have no idea of his condition on this day insofar as I can read up. But on this day, in this season, he spoke what he felt like had to be said without thought of himself. And if I will be honest with you, when I think about Pastor Yi, and then I think about me, I am reminded of something an Anglican bishop by the name of N.T. Wright once said about himself. He said, wherever the Apostle Paul went, they started a riot. Wherever I go, they make tea. Because in comparison to his context and Paul's context, the disparity between their experiences of faith could not be more stark. And when I think about Pastor Yi's experience and my own experience, the same holds true. I wrote this sermon in the comforts of a chair in an office in my house. I give this sermon to you in a place where I have no concern about being supervised by the state, insofar as I can tell. And though I do not make mention of that disparity so that you would have sympathy for me, there, there, don't beat yourself up, Pastor Patrick. I'm not saying it for that reason, nor am I saying it to guilt you into asking you why haven't you gotten arrested for your faith yet. But I make mention of that disparity only to say this, have we not all, myself included, something to learn about Pastor Yee's understanding of the Lord 
that would lead him to be willing to experience the rejection that he is at this very hour? Have I not something to learn about this God in whom he serves? Because what has inspired him to walk the way that has been laid out for him are the same words that we've been giving ourselves attention to for the last several weeks and will henceforth for a while too, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. And today marks the last of those introductory statements of the Sermon on the Mount. We hear of them as Beatitudes. They form a profile of one who has been awakened to something true about God. And this last Beatitude is the most paradoxical and crazy idea of anything you've heard so far. Blessed, Jesus says, are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. What in the world? Catherine Grady in just a minute is going to recite for you all of the Beatitudes at once so that we might hear this last Beatitude properly. But we want to listen to that last Beatitude with the greatest focus because we want to learn three things about persecution. That it happens, why it happens, and what happens when you or someone you know might face it when it happens. That it happens, why it happens, and how to face it when it happens. If you're able to stand, let's hear all the Beatitudes, and this one in particular. Would you stand? This is a reading from Matthew 5, verse 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you on my behalf. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There might be worse things to do with your time than memorize the Beatitudes. I guarantee it. I won't lie to you. For the last nine weeks in these Beatitudes, I have struggled to kind of find something that just sort of captures what, what is Jesus' intention to really speak these really uh, enigmatic, uh, narrow, pithy phrases just before we, we launch out into the wider waters of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And I, I think it comes down to something like this. There are moments in your life where you notice something different in another or you notice them respond in a certain way and you say this, what has gotten into you? Or what has come over them? You, you see that and you note that and you marvel at that and I think the Beatitudes are 
the answer to the question, what has come over you? And the answer to that question, the Beatitudes, is God has come over me. When God has gotten into us, when, when he has come to disclose himself in a way that he has more than just illumined our, our cognition, but illumined our very souls, we become aware of this poverty of spirit we've, where we've got nothing to commend ourselves to him. And, and when we grapple with that, we, we mourn the fact that there is nothing I have in my own power to change that reality unless he does something for me on his own behalf. And then, because I am mourning over what is not true of me, I am far more likely to be meek and gentle and deferent to those who are walking the same tortured line than I am myself. And when he has come over me, then I have a new affection for him, and I start to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that I'm only beginning to understand. And when that righteousness begins begins to appear beautiful to me, then it's that point where I'm beginning to show mercy. I'm beginning to see that mercy has a place in this world that is often always seeking out for justice. And then my own heart, it starts to long to be pure, to be holy as he is holy, and therefore to become even more sensitive to all the ways in which I am not. And when mercy and purity of heart begins to take hold in me, then I, I start to look outward and I realize that this is a world in need of peacemaking and I shall do it. And here in this last of the Beatitudes, Jesus, I think, is out to say that what happens when God gets into you? You know what happens? You find God and his way so beautiful and delightful and obedient that you are willing to put yourself out there in a way that you don't care what kind of blowback comes your way. Blessed are the persecuted, he's saying. This first thing he's got to tell us is, look, in this world, it's going to happen. Now, as soon as I start talking about persecution, we've got to define our terms. Because I've got to explain to you what persecution is and what it is not. You know what it is not? Persecution is not that your kid's public school refused to put on a Charlie Brown Christmas and then didn't let your kid play Linus there at the end to recite Luke 2 to help everybody understand and Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about. If that didn't happen in your public school, that's not, it's okay. That's not persecution. It's not persecution if they didn't allow your kid to say a prayer sometime after the Pledge of Allegiance, if they still do that. That's not persecution either. And and to borrow a, a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson in a very different context, he says, let us not make the vulgar mistake of ever confusing persecution with simply being contradicted. It's not persecution. Persecution in the, the bald way of understanding the word is lives on a spectrum. It can mean that you are being publicly vilified for what you believe. It may end up being hunted and harried and hounded and harangued and harmed and all those things. It may be rushed out of your place of, of living that you might uh, find live under a bridge or, or be worried about how you're going to eat or how you're going to survive. It may require you being imprisoned or tortured or even put to death. There is a book that just came out this week called The 21, and it tells as much as it can the stories of those 21 Coptic Christians that were marched out on a Libyan coast four years ago and beheaded for a YouTube video simply because they claimed the name of Jesus. This persecution, it doesn't always end up in violence, but it can end up in all sorts of harmful forms of rejection. And even as I say that, I've got to say this too. 
persecution, okay, we'll say it lives on a spectrum. And if you want to go down kind of the, towards the less violent side of the spectrum, there are still more modest, modest forms of rejection that, that they don't share the same severity as persecution, but they do share the same spirit as it. And, and you and I can be subject to that as well. You get passed over, you get marginalized, you get ostracized, you get prejudiced towards you, you get called a bigot simply because you claim the name of Jesus. All of those things can happen these days. Kids, if you're in a school, depending on where you are, if you were to ever kind of live out or, or declare Jesus in some way, you know, it can, it can be anywhere from getting blown off to getting beat up. Does it happen a lot around here? Probably not. But can it? Sure. There is a real persecution that's happening in more places than you and I would ever want to count. But there is rejection that shares that same spirit that we still have to grapple with that that may be part of our life. It may be part of your experience and part of your story. Whether Jesus is talking about persecution or whether we're kind of adapting that to our context where it's more like rejection, the same thing holds true. It happens. And the sooner we get there, the less likely we will be shocked by it should it happen to us? It surely happened to Jesus. His very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. His rep has followed him. They say, this dude apparently knows the scriptures pretty well. They invite him into the synagogue. They say, hey man, you come read. He stands up. He asks for the scroll. They open to Isaiah 61 and he reads that passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint, to proclaim good news to the world to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim sight to the blind, to proclaim an end to the oppression. And he sits down, they take the scroll back, and he sits down getting ready to teach, and he says, guess what? This prophecy is now fulfilled in your hearing. Like, I'm it. I'm the one you're waiting for. And they're all looking like, say what? At first they marvel at him, and they go, wait a minute, you're from Nazareth. What do you know? And before the day is over, they're running him out to the side of a cliff trying to throw him over it, and he escapes. Welcome. It's persecution. And you know where the story goes. It only ramps up from there. And it ramps up for anybody that ends up following Jesus. Study the life of Paul. And he makes it pretty clear in his letters to to Timothy. In this world, if you're part of him, don't be surprised if rejection and persecution comes. It's the story. And, you know, here's the deal. All of that, we know it. We've heard sermons on it. We've read books about it. We hear stories about it. And to us, it's like, that's in some other world that I don't know. It's, it's unfamiliar to me. For most of us in this room, myself included, the most we've felt from others who do not hold to what we hold, we are seen as an oddity. Kind of like the moment in that famous Norman Rockwell painting. Aren't they all famous, right? Uh, 1947, it's called uh, Saying Grace, and it's a grandma and her kid. They're sitting in some diner, and they're praying, and everybody looks at them like they're zoo animals. What are they doing? And that's 80 years ago. And that experience may still be true for some, but, um, Sal, shall we say, times have changed a little. Um, now we're maybe still seen as something like an oddity, um, but now we'll say that the oddity is transformed more into like suspicion. Or, uh, I'm going to steer clear of you. I'm worried about you. Now, 
the, the thing about this is you and I are not supposed to walk around with this reality in our mind and go, woe is me. Woe is me. Because like playing the victim is rather popular. And neither are we to like blow up whatever social media presence we have and say, did you hear about what the slight I felt because of some action of obedience I might have enacted in? Me saying that Jesus is telling us that persecution happens is not for us to go, oh, it's so bad. But let me kind of give you a picture of kind of where things are, I think, in, in this world. Um, I'm going to show you a clip from a sitcom called um, Silicon Valley. Now, this clip is heavily edited. <clears throat> but I think it nails um, um, a sense of kind of where... Um, American culture is with respect to seeing Christians, at least in some neck of the woods. Okay, Silicon Valley happens in Silicon Valley in California. But to, to set up the scene here, um, the, 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 the group that runs the, the internet company, um, they're about to enter into a partnership with a new guy. And he's bring, coming on staff, and it's a business partnership. And um, they're in a group board meeting with this new guy. And in the midst of their getting to know him, um, one member of the meeting um, announces that this new guy is actually a Christian. And everybody, it's like, they all like spit their tea out at that moment, right? Because it's almost like he said, it's almost like as if he'd said, he's a member of the Nazi party. And so here is the moment after the meeting in which uh, the person who is a Christian, he's the blonde dude with the glasses, um, kind of explains to everybody uh, how he feels about being outed as a Christian and how everybody else kind of processes um, the fact that he is. So check it out. Oh, that went well started out a little weird, but things really picked up. Why did you do that? Why did you say that? Say what? Richard, you just told a room full of tech people that I'm a Christian. Oh, okay. But, but you are, aren't you? Yes, but I told you that in confidence. I said, between you and me. I'm not openly Christian. Thanks a lot, man. You just outed me. Oh, I'm sorry, Dee Dee. I didn't... Okay. Um, should we... Hug? I can not make it weird this time. We can... I'm sorry, Richard. You know that my default position is blind support of whatever you do, but this was not your best moment. Guys, it can't be that big of a deal, right? Why should it be? America loves Christians. Muslims are the enemy. Well, that's true in most of America, but not in Silicon Valley, sadly. Sadly? You can be openly polyamorous, and people here will call you brave. You can put microdoses of LSD in your cereal, and and people will call you a pioneer. But... (laughs) The one thing you cannot be is a Christian. I find their theology to be illegitimate, and it's clear that they are the source of the majority of the world's problems. Guys, come on, it can't be that bad. Richard, so I just got off the phone with Colin over at K-Hole, and while he loves your tech, he's considering blowing up the deal. What? Just because one of my CEOs is Christian? It freaks people out in the valley. Okay, so what do you want me to do, Monica? You want me to drop D.D. just because he's Christian? Look, cutting all ties to D.D. and First Sight will definitely send a strong message to Colin. <sighs> Forget it, Monica. I'm not doing it. I mean, I'm not dropping him. All right. Fine. Fine. I, I will call Colin and try and smooth things over for you, but you need to handle D.D. Okay, apologize for outing him, of course, but you need to make sure that he keeps quiet about this. Right? Because it's not just about losing K-Hole. It's way worse than that. Let's put it this way. Would you want to go from being a rock band to being a Christian rock band? (laughs) 
with, with apologies to any of you who were once part of a Christian rock band, um, and now are attempted never to declare that again. Look, I, it's a sitcom, and, and we laugh about it, and I kind of kind of credit the, the writers of it, that they, they see the irony, right? Like, it's the one thing you don't talk about anymore. And one thing that actually maybe you shouldn't, because, you know, bad optics. In some places, surely not in every place, I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush here, but the thing is, if you declare identification with him, in some ways, it's not not crazy to think that you might be excluded in some way. Um, If you end up living out some of those convictions in some sort of demonstrable way, um, you know what? You could be uh, demoted, uh, defamed, fired, whatever it is, because not only is it bad for optics, it may be bad for the bottom line. It's just the nature of it. Once again, I am not here to encourage us all to get into a group licking of our wounds. Most of us, myself included, don't have any. But it is important for us to grasp that this happens. And therefore, if I might carefully put words in Jesus' mouth, if any of us at any point ever catch ourselves thinking or saying, I can't believe this is happening to me, Jesus might respectfully say, "Mm, yeah, I can imagine this happening to you. It happens. But why? Like, where does it come from? You know, uh, violence is can oftentimes be random. You know, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, but rejection or persecution, whatever it might be, that's got a point to it. It's out to silence or to squelch or to, to limit the spread of things, to, to just sort of keep it at bay, keep it in your little private world, but God forbid it should ever come out into your public discourse or your public actions or your public opinion. But if that's its point, like, what's driving it? Who, who, why are they going after it? Why do they, why do they go there? And you kind of you answer that question by just considering, why did it happen to Jesus? I mean, Jesus says stuff that challenges deep-seated convictions. They, he begins to disrupt the way they have thought for a very long time. It's their order. It's their orthodoxy. And he comes in and undermines it to them. And that is unsettling. And then eventually he starts speaking in a way that they begin to accuse him of maybe um, assuming a certain authority about himself that they think is purely blasphemous. Who are you to forgive sins, man? Just because what he said. And, and eventually he says enough to rile up the Jewish establishment that they say, you're a threat. And they feel so threatened that at some point they convince Rome to say, this is no political friend of yours. He is ripe for revolution. You ought to get on this. And Rome believes it half enough, and they think you're a threat. Jesus is saying, though, in the Beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted, not because you're a threat. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does he mean by that? You don't got to go far. You just got to look over your shoulder at what he's just said in the Beatitudes. Sometimes when it talks about blessed are the merciful, you know what? You show mercy, you're going to encourage or invite some blowback from people that would just as soon you go for justice and now. Rosario Butterfield, I've, I've mentioned her book a lot recently, that book on hospitality. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She opens that book by telling a story about a new guy that moves into the neighborhood, kind of a reclusive dude, uh, kind of to himself. He, he dismantles his doorbell so nobody can bother him. Oh, not exactly Mr. Rogers, right? And 
but, but she shows hospitality to him. They walk dogs with each other. When his dog gets loose and runs off, the family, her family starts to go help him find it. They just become friends, and, and she kind of helps move him into the warp and woof of the community. And then one morning, she's having her devotions, and all of a sudden she looks out their window, and there's police in front of his house, and tape all around, and lights blazing, and her cell phone starts to blow up with texts from the neighbors. She walks outside and discovers from the cops that that dude across the street has been building a meth lab in his garage. And everybody in the neighborhood is looking at her going, you befriended him? Do you know how, did you know how dangerous he was? Did you conceal that? Do you know what this could do to our property values? She gets the blowback for having been merciful to some guy who's obviously a story she wasn't quite as familiar with as she might, but it didn't change the way she thought of him. That's mercy. You want to live pure in heart? In the way Jesus talks about, you're going to get ridiculed. You're going to get hated for that. You're going to get called any sorts of things called repressed, puritanical, whatever you want to call it. It's just going to come that way. And if you want to seek peace, there are some folks that would rather you just persist in your estrangement than you ever go out to make peace. So it doesn't, it's not a stretch to figure out why Jesus would say, blessed are the persecuted for those who are for, for righteousness sake. Jesus experienced the same. He gets blowback for raising the bar of what righteousness is, but also widening the circle of those who might ever be invited into that family of God. When you hear him talk about what we do with our words and our anger and our lust and our retaliation and our enemies, people are going to look at him like, are you nuts? You speak like a madman. It's crazy. I know what the law says. You're saying it's deeper than that. And he goes, it is deeper than that. And then when he goes and eats with the so-called tax collectors and sinners, and people are galled that he's getting up that close and intimate with people who are unrighteous in the eyes of others, and he is in so many ways saying the righteous God comes for unrighteous people that they might be invited into his righteous family. And they say, are you crazy? You're defiling yourself. And for all of that, he experiences all manner of provocation. That's his life. And that is true for anybody who would follow him. But that's, like, why are they threatened by that? What's going on there? Thomas Nagel is, a, is an atheist. He's also a philosopher. And he is in no way... Um, a persecutor of those with religious faith. He, in fact, has great respect for those with religious faith. If anything, he has gotten more criticism from his fellow atheists for the way in which he critiques their sloppy thinking. But in a really candid moment in a book he wrote, Thomas Nagel wrote this about the fear surrounding religious faith among those who do not have it. He says, I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Again, not a, a persecutorial bone in his body, so far as I know. But I think he touches on what is at the core of that unfamiliarity and that sense of 
threat that comes from those who espouse a certain religious faith. Surely it was true of the Jewish establishment. Surely it was true of the Roman Empire. But in our day, you know what Jesus is a threat to? Our personal autonomy. And that's just a big way of saying, kids, we like to do what we like to do. And anybody come and tell me what I can or can't do, I don't like that. Especially in my day where it feels like I am, it's my body. It's my life. Step back and step off. You want me to give you a real clear embracing example of that? Um, Scott Sauls, he's a pastor in Nashville, and he just wrote a book called Irresistible Faith. I would recommend it to anybody. But in, in that book, he, he mentions an experience of somebody that he had met with on a number of occasions to talk about Jesus, even though this guy had no religious faith, um, come from a background, but totally repudiated it. And one, at one moment, Scott Sauls sits with him in a coffee shop and talks to him about Jesus, and at some point, the guy kind of gets livid with him. Not just, I disagree, but stop it. And Scott Sauls kind of looks at him like, okay, what just happened here? And the guy gets really candid. He says this, Scott, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the reason, the real reason why I dislike Christianity. It's not because the evidence is unconvincing to me. In fact, the opposite is true. But I still don't ever want to become a Christian because if I do, Jesus will ask me to forgive my father for the ways that he hurt me. There are moments and aspects of what it means to follow him where people might have really credible rational arguments for why they just can't go there. It's a bridge too far. It seems too absurd. But there are other moments in which people are so animated by what he says because of something in their background and they realize that if they give in to Jesus, they've got to give in to something that hurts too badly. And from that can come all manner of rejection. That's where it is. Fear can be behind it. Not just reason, but sometimes fear. But, but we also have to realize that it's not just fear that might be involved in the mix. There, there actually may be a function to all of this, a purpose. Tertullian was a third century church father who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Those who have suffered rejection and persecution and death simply because of their faith they were their own very persuasive argument for it. And if you hear that and you think that is bizarre, Pastor Yi, sitting in some prison in Chengdu, China, said as much when he said this. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans for his plans are always benevolent and good. He is wondering aloud if there may be a point and purpose to what he is enduring. He's not saying that every experience of persecution is directly correlated to some clear example of how it will bear fruit, but he is saying it's possible that that could be true for his story. And if you think that is nuts to hear somebody say that God might be cool, that he is sitting in a prison, it's only coming from out of the text. Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, if you can wrap your head around this one, Peter says to a crowd that is coming for him, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. What he's saying is, it's their persecution, but it was God's plan. Sit with that one for a while. But friends, that's, it's just in the text. There's, it's a precedent you have to grapple with. It's a precedent I have to grapple with. It's a precedent I have to learn from. And it is a precedent that somebody else learned from that you're familiar with. Because he doesn't live very far from here. And he spent two years in a Turkish prison. And he got home a few months ago. And he went on CBS News several weeks ago, or rather a couple months ago. And this is what he said to explain his experience in Turkey. His name is Andrew Brunson. Detained in Turkey for two years is beginning to readjust to life back here in the United States. Pastor Andrew Brunson was charged with espionage and links to a terrorist organization in 2016. The indictment against the pastor says he worked to convert Kurds to Christianity in order to sow discord in Turkey. He denies any wrongdoing. A Turkish court sentenced him to prison on Friday but released him on time serve. Brunson lived in Turkey for more than 20 years and oversaw a Presbyterian church. Pastor Brunson joins us with his wife, Noreen, at the table. We're so glad you're here. So yes. glad you're Thank safe. You. Welcome so, home. Thank you. Welcome home indeed. So you all had gone to fill out some paperwork and you were arrested and told what? We were told we were a threat to national security and would be deported. But then we waited to be deported and they didn't. And eventually, well, they kept me for two years. And what were you thinking, Andrew, when you're told you're a threat to national security? What were you doing there? Well, we were very shocked because we had spent 23 years uh, working very openly, telling people about Jesus, helping refugees, things like that. So we hadn't done anything that would uh, harm national security. We were just telling people about Jesus. Did you ever think what you were doing would land you in prison, that, that it was dangerous? Uh, not that it would land us in prison. We're the first ones who have experienced that in Turkey in a long time. Were you all able to communicate with each other during that time? What did you think? Very little. Uh-huh. Very little. So that you knew was, he was safe? Uh, he was moved. Uh, there were just so many question marks. What's happening? Silence. We're not told what's going on, what's going to happen. I was very isolated in prison. I was for uh, some time in uh, solitary confinement mm -hmm. and then in another prison that was quite overcrowded and there, I was overcrowded like how well uh, we were a cell for eight people and had over 20 people there in the cell for yes eight. yes oh. and there was very little contact with the outside so I could see Noreen for example 35 minutes a week through glass talking by phone mm -hmm. and so she actually is very strong and had to take me through this emotionally and spiritually she was the only one I could receive truth from mm -hmm. and so when she would come in she would encourage me and that's what would keep me going through the next week yeah. whatever reason the Turkish government was holding us for I believe that God was involved in this for us because I think of millions of people who prayed for Turkey during that time mm -hmm. and how God is bringing blessing out of it were they interrogating you on a regular basis were you beaten while you were in prison how were you treated? no I, I wasn't beaten the problem is that I wasn't interrogated mm -hmm. so for the first 18 months uh, I didn't know why I was in prison mm. did you were you allowed to have a Bible uh, eventually it took a while before I could have any books or Bible but eventually I did have one is there a passage that got you through all this well, I, I read Second Timothy a lot where Paul talks about suffering and finishing the race well, and this is, became my prayer. I want to be faithful and endure and finish well. It's, yeah, okay. It's baffling to think that uh, one man in the presence he has would intimidate a whole country. 
threatened, even though he's a pawn in the whole situation, right? But in him, in those words, he's talking about that there is a, surely fear motivates it, but that there may be a function to it, which gets us then to the last thing that Jesus wants us to consider. Yeah, it happens. We, we hear that, and, and now we're beginning to understand why, but the, the question is, whatever rejection we might experience, how does one face that? And the first thing you have to do, should it come your way, is to actually ask your heart a question. Am I being obedient or just simply obnoxious? Because it's possible to think that you're the former when you're really only being the latter, such that Peter, in his letter to the churches in 1 Peter, he says in 1 Peter 3, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying so long as the mode of your obedience is conveyed through a certain respect for those who have perhaps great pointed difference with you. If you can show them respect and do so with gentleness, then one might not be accused of being obnoxious, but simply seeking to be obedient. If that is true of your heart, then what Jesus has for us in being able to face it is to encourage us to take the long view. To see our life in the whole sweep of things. Because in any particular moment of rejection, everything feels like that moment is infinite. But Jesus is asking us to consider an eternal moment so that that infinite thing is actually seen as infinitesimal. And by that I mean this. Blessed are the persecuted for those, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A mighty fortress is our God. His kingdom is forever, Jesus is having us sing. It started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is the point. The making of all things new. And those who recognize their poverty of spirit and who in time find themselves actually provoking persecution as a consequence of obedience, they are the beginning of him making all things new. And so he is, if you will, speaking in a way, uh, to borrow a phrase from the Air Force, if you're taking flack, um, that would mean you're over the target. If rejection or pushback or otherwise is coming your way, take heart. Take courage. You've obviously touched a nerve and, and your own inner heart's condition is revealing that you get it and that you are earmarked for a day in which there will be an end to this kind of hostility. You have to take the long view in that way. And as you take long view, Jesus says the most bewildering thing of all the Beatitudes, rejoice and be glad when you are reviled and persecuted and all sorts of false things uttered against you on my account. Rejoice, be glad. Rejoice! What? And yet that's just what happens to a bunch of the disciples in Acts chapter 5. They, they get picked up for talking about Jesus. They get thrown in prison and somebody comes to their defense and they get released. And then in Acts chapter 5 it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Uh... Rejoicing that they were in prison? No. Rejoicing that they were in prison by virtue of the fact that the word was getting out. And in that they rejoiced. 
For great is your reward in heaven, he says. Jesus, you know what Jesus is doing? He's doing a little cost-benefit analysis. Um, He brings out two charts. On one chart, he lists everything that you and I could lose in this life if we receive persecution or rejection for our faith. And that list is long and hard and full of tears and pain and sorrow. All of it. It's real. And he doesn't diminish that. But then he pulls out the other chart. And that chart would say, everything that you gain by belonging to me. And on that chart, there's a little footnote. And on that footnote, it says, figure cannot be represented out of range. He's doing that little analysis and just saying, I know you can lose everything here, but what you have in me is still far greater than anything you could lose. Rejoice in that. And rejoice also that you're in excellent company because there's a lot of folks that will have felt just what you felt. And though they will not be there to sweep up the ashes or dry your tears, they will look on with admiration too. The most important thing that Jesus gives us though, and here I will end, The most important thing he gives us that allows us then to face whatever form of rejection comes our way is this. He gives us himself. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 12, he breaks the fourth wall, if you will. He's been talking before us, and then he starts looking at us. He says, Blessed are you when all this happens on my account. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when all that happens on my account. He is there to say to us that He is yours and my righteousness. He is our righteousness. We belong to Him, not because we were brave, but because He was. We belong to Him, not because we were able to persevere in persecution, but because He did. We belong to Him, not because we were worthy of His love or worthy of belonging to Him, but because we found in Him beauty and belonging. And He makes us His own. He is our righteousness, and that cannot be taken from us. And that, friends, is our invitation to trust Him. That, friends, is our invitation to take heart when somebody either blows you off or beats you up simply because you mentioned Jesus as what animates your heart. This text is not to invite you to go pick a fight. It is only asking you to consider why God might be so good that he might be worthy of suffering for that sake. Kids, it can happen to you as much as any adult in this room. It is true for us. It is true for them. And though none of us would long to experience what Pastor Yee did or what Pastor Brunson did, God is worthy, and he is able. So friends, we're going to respond to the sermon in a unique kind of way. We're going to sing a song, a song that you're probably all too familiar with, and yet as unfamiliar as could be. So unfamiliar, you share a lot with the rugby fans that sing this very same song before every match. The English rugby community will all sing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, before every single match. For what reason? I have no idea. You can look it up yourself. (laughs) But that defies the original context of that song. Written by a black slave who was owned by a Choctaw slave owner 
and who in his great desperation reached for words and a melody that might comfort him, that might allow him to take the long view of his life such that one day his oppression may cease. So even as you sing this, have those words and that history in your mind. And perhaps even in the singing of it, we will draw some benefit from it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know that you are not saying to us through this text, we must suffer or else. We know from Peter himself that he set aside the possibility of threat or denial or rejection or persecution by denying you thrice. And you did not disown him. You restored him and showed him your love and called him to that same kind of love that you'd shown him. And surely we must take rest in that when we fail, when we crawl into our fear and stay there. Father, we pray for your mercies upon us. But we pray most that you would build into us a sense that you are good and that whatever harm or rejection may come our way, you are worth it. In Jesus' name we pray for Pastor Yee. Amen.